Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha. We're in volume six of this book series, The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment, Revealing the Hidden. This volume is all about the natural law of gamma. And students throughout the world are studying the various chapters. And this week, we focused on chapters 11 through 20. And we'll be discussing those in class today. There'll be a student who will read the chapter. Then I'll share any teachings related to that chapter. And we'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. If you're joining us for the first time and you haven't read these chapters, it's okay because we're going to be doing meditation first just to kind of prepare the mind for the class and learning the teachings of the Buddha. Then we're going to be displaying the chapters on the screen and a student will actually be reading them. And if you haven't studied, it's okay because we're going to be studying them as part of our class. But in the future, if you would like to join this class and be part of this program where you're gradually, consistently learning the teachings of the Buddha, you can download these books from going to buddhadailywisdom.com. And from there, there's a button to click on where you can do the free download of the books or you can take it and go print it or you can order a printed copy on Amazon. So I'd like to welcome all of you to our class. We'll start out with our meditation, which is breathing mindfulness meditation. I don't tend to do too much guidance here because people who join us for this class tend to be a little bit further along in their practice. But I will do a little bit of guidance just to kind of help anybody who's joining us maybe for the first time to understand how to do breathing mindfulness meditation. So if you guys would like to go ahead and take your position for meditation, we'll start with chanting just to kind of ease the mind into meditation. And then I'll give some guidance after the chants. If you know these chants, you're welcome to join along. So with you sitting in the seated position with your lower body comfortable, your hands and arms in your lap, your upper body nice and erect, bring your hands together and then just start the chants. And then we'll ease into meditation from there. Sawa <laughs> 
and gradual breathing in and out once the breath is established fixate the mind on the breath the sound of the breath coming into the nose or the sensation of air moving over the skin into the nose The breath is the present moment. Fixate the mind on the breath. Breathing in and out. Whenever you observe that the mind is moved off the breath, cut that off, let it go. Don't follow that thought. Don't label it, don't try to observe it, don't try to figure out where it's come from. Just cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath, the present moment. Breathing in and out. I'm going to be quiet now and just let you do this work of focusing on the breath. And anytime it's off the breath, cut it off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Breathing in and out. 
switch over to learning with the words of the Buddha using this book series, The Words of the Buddha, Volume 6. This week we've been studying chapters 11 through 20, and I'll just turn things over to all of you guys to be able to read the chapters, then I'll teach, and then open up to any questions. If Anybody has any questions on Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, you can put those into the comment section and they'll get read during the class by the moderators. And then if you're in Zoom, you can electronically raise your hand and ask any questions or follow-up questions directly. So I'll just turn things over to you guys. Well, to do an action, Rahula, when you intend to do an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same body action. Thus, would this action that I intend to do with the body lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both? Is it an unwholesome body action with painful consequences, with painful results? When you reflect, if you know 
This action that I intend to do with the body would lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both. It is an unwholesome body action with painful consequences, with painful results. Then you definitely should not do such an action with the body. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I intend to do with the body would not lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both, it is a wholesome body action with wholesome consequences, with wholesome results, then you may do such an action with the body. All right. Thank you, Bossum. So here we've got three chapters that are actually very similar in nature, where the Buddha is talking to his son, who basically ordained with him and became enlightened during the Buddha's lifetime. And what these three chapters are focusing in on are bodily actions and how we can have harmful bodily actions, because any actions that we do the results of those decisions are going to come back to us. So the Buddha is going to be giving his son guidance here about if you're intending to do an action and you observe that it's unwholesome, you shouldn't do that action. Or if you intend to do an action and it's wholesome, then you know you can do that action. And the later chapters will see that he talks about while doing an actual action, if you know it's unwholesome, then you should refrain from doing that. Or if you know it's wholesome, then you know you can do that. And then he talks about afterwards as well as once you've done a bodily action, you should reflect on whether that was wholesome or unwholesome. And this is all based on the natural law of gamma, which is what we're studying in this volume because our decisions lead to certain results. And if we make wholesome decisions, they will lead to wholesome results. That's our wholesome gamma. And if we make unwholesome decisions, particularly here with bodily actions, then those unwholesome decisions to harm others through our bodily actions is going to come back to us. And harmful bodily actions are things like killing or stealing, having sexual misconduct. The Buddha never says this, but, you know, punching someone in the face or walking down the street and bumping into somebody really hard, even though you might bump into someone by accident, you know, that's something that you can apologize for. But we should be aware of our body and our bodily movements to ensure that we're not causing harm to others through our bodily movements. And if we make a mistake, like bumping into somebody on the street or while we're walking somewhere, we can apologize. And that's part of this practice is that you know that you have concentration, you have awareness of mind, and you observe your bodily movements and ensuring that you're not causing harm through your body. And the Buddha gives us a way to think about before, during, and after actions to ensure that they're wholesome and not unwholesome, because wholesome decisions will result in wholesome results. Any questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. About the first part, which is doing something harmful to ourselves, is it, I mean, the unwholesome results, is it only what happens in this certain situation, or it may have some unwholesome consequences on the mind? Uh, it can be both. We can harm this being through our bodily actions, right? Like drinking substances that cause heedlessness or taking any substances that cause heedlessness. There can be harmful things that we do 
there's just so many of them you know that's why the buddha kind of lists some of the major ones but there's all this whole litany of things that we can do that would be harmful to our own self this own body so we should refrain from all of that yeah thanks teacher mm-hmm. yes sir um what should a practitioner do if they're unsure even after reflecting whether a bodily or mental or verbal action would cause harm this is where you can consult the teachings of the buddha if you have those like this book series and you can reach out to your teacher as well to consult with them because as you, someone gains the wisdom of this path they're going to need to look into the teachings of the buddha and then seek guidance with the teacher and in this way you gradually build your wisdom about what would be wholesome and what would be unwholesome and then this develops in the mind what the buddha calls moral wrongdoing there's qualities of mind that he talks about that's called moral wrongdoing and moral concern and when you develop moral wrongdoing this is a person who understands essentially right from wrong or wholesome from the unwholesome and this is part of the wisdom that we develop as part of this path to be able to know that oh this is something wholesome and this is something unwholesome and if you can consult with the teachings of the buddha or your teacher that would be ideal if you're in the heat of the moment and you don't know if you can refrain from doing that until you can consult that would be ideal but if you can't and you actually do something then you're going to be able to see whether it was unwholesome or wholesome based on what comes back to you if you have a certain decision that you make that's unwholesome it's going to produce unwholesome results and you should be able to see that that's where the natural law of gamma is the most unbiased teacher and likewise if it was a certain wholesome decision you should be able to see that that it will produce wholesome results in your life and this is the natural law of gamma helping you to be able to see that but at any point either before during or after you can always uh, look to consult the teachings of the buddha and or your teacher and this will help you to build your wisdom so that then in the future you'll have more wisdom to be able to know for yourself whether something is wholesome or unwholesome thank you sir mm-hmm. well thanks teacher no more questions all right so we'll go to the next one chapter 12 Yes. While doing an action. Also Rahula, while you are doing an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same body action. Thus, does this action that I am doing with the body lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both? Is it an unwholesome body action with unwholesome consequences with unwholesome results? When you reflect, if you know this action that I am doing with the body leads to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both it is an unwholesome body action with unwholesome consequences with unwholesome results then you should suspend such a body action but when you reflect if you know this action that I am doing with the body does not lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both it is a wholesome body action with wholesome consequences with wholesome results then you may continue in such a body action okay so here this is very similar to the last one but it's while you're actually doing a certain bodily action and what he's saying is if you discover while you're doing something 
that it's unwholesome and you, you kind of have that sense of mind and that wisdom comes to your mind and you should suspend that you should stop it so let's just say you were in the middle of stealing something or you were in the middle of you know doing something like that and you realized oh my goodness this isn't wholesome for me to do this this is only going to produce harm to others and harm to myself so let me stop this let me let me set this down and not take this this wouldn't be wise but the buddha is saying if you know that what you're doing is wholesome then you can continue forward and continue to do those things because you know that it's not going to produce unwholesome results because what you're doing is wholesome and this is part of that moral wrongdoing right is understanding right from wrong or wholesome from unwholesome and then that moral concern that i talked about or mentioned at least is having the concern that the things that you're doing that are unwholesome are going to lead to unwholesome results and ensuring that you choose to not do those things at different times in our life we didn't necessarily know what was wholesome and unwholesome because we lacked wisdom and we probably didn't even have moral concern if we knew something was unwholesome there were certain times in our life where we just didn't care we just did it anyway based on our own selfish desires so what you're doing as part of transforming the mind is you're moving away from your selfish desires and stop pursuing things out of craving where the mind is unrestrained instead you're starting to have this wisdom and you're starting to be able to restrain the mind so that through breathing mindfulness meditation when you're training the mind to cut things off and let it go it results here that if you happen to be involved in a certain bodily action and you realize halfway through or any time through that it's unwholesome you should be able to cut that off and let it go and be like you know what i'm not going to do this let me just put this down let me not do this and this will help you to be able to restrain the mind by this whole comprehensive practice of the buddha's path to enlightenment coming together that here we're talking about bodily actions but those bodily actions originate from the mind through the intentions right so if we can restrain the mind and we can control the mind and we have the wisdom in the mind to know right and wrong and we have this moral concern to not do harmful things then with the control of the mind and that mental discipline if we observe that while doing something it is going to be harmful then we should be able to restrain the mind and pull it back and stop doing that bodily action because we know it's only going to produce unwholesome results so questions on this chapter Yes, teacher. Uh, do you consider frivolous speech as a kind of harmful uh, decision? So one should observe this and stop uh, if there is something frivolous we are saying? Yeah, so frivolous speech, you know, is related to verbal action or speech, right? Speech here, we're talking about bodily action, but it's the same thing that what the Buddha is talking about here with bodily action you can apply it to verbal action, you can apply it to mental action too. So before you speak, before you say something, like the Buddha was saying in the previous chapter, whatever you're intending to say, you should have understanding, is this wholesome or is this unwholesome? And the way that you know that is through the five factors of well-spoken speech. And if something is unwholesome, then you should stop that, you should cut that off, you should not do that. And frivolous speech would be 
part of that harmful speech that it's unpurposeful it's unbeneficial it usually is just kind of coming from craving desire attachment somebody wanting to talk but it's not really beneficial or purposeful speech so you can if you're halfway through that or anywhere part of frivolous speech and you realize ah this isn't beneficial you can cut that off and let it go if you have a well-trained mind or if you're getting ready to say something you can realize no that's not a, a good thing to say let me just hold that back let me restrain the mind from doing that because it would be harmful if we just yada 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 unpurposeful unbeneficial speech or frivolous speech or even idle chatter so this teaching that the buddha is describing about bodily actions you can actually apply this to uh, your intentions your speech in your actions or what the buddha calls bodily action verbal action and mental action let's go to Maranda. yes sir on facebook paul Richit asks venerable teacher what should we do in a situation where not doing something would lead to harm of others but save oneself for example like some gang of people beating a person in which helping the person could harm yourself but not helping could harm the other person yeah, so this would fall under what I would describe as defense or protection, right? This is where the Buddhist teachings aren't absolute, right? You have to be able to use your wisdom. Is it wise for you to step in there and help that person? Or is it wise for you to go get help with other people? You have to look at the situation, right? If there's 20 people attacking one person and you're by yourself, how much benefit could you really be in that situation? But if it's just one person attacking another person, maybe you decide to approach and help, right? You have to decide what's the best way for you to help. That's why the Buddha doesn't give us a decision tree because the variables are going to be different in every situation and you have to have your wisdom to decide what's the best way to solve this situation. In that same scenario that you're describing, there could be one person with a knife and a gun attacking somebody. You don't have a knife or a gun and would it be wise for you to step in there? That's where you have to decide. There's no permanent answer that anybody could give. But you can provide defense and you can provide protection either for yourself or for other people. What I suggest as part of volume one, when I talk about that in chapter seven, I talk about it as you know, providing defense, providing protection, but doing the least amount of harm as possible to ensure that you can actually provide the defense or the protection. So this is where you have to try to decide in the moment of what's the wisest thing to do. For example, if there was a gang of people that were coming to break into this house, I would try to go gather up the family and then just jump out the window and go somewhere else because if they want to destroy the house, if they want to take anything in the house, let them take it me sitting here defending property isn't a wise decision in my view. I wouldn't have always said that, but now I feel that way, that it wouldn't be wise to just sit here and defend property with a gang of 10 or 20 people. But in another situation, if that gang of people are here and they're trying to inflict harm on us, they've trapped us in a corner, then you know we will need to try to defend and protect our being. But Again, we have to make those decisions as we go and ensure that we're causing the least amount of harm as possible in the situation. So sometimes when people think about Buddhist teachings, we think that 
it's just about complacency and being passive and things like this. And yes, there's a certain aspect of these teachings where we're not causing harm to others, but there's no point in the Buddhist teachings where he talks about being passive or complacent. So we need to be able to practice this harmlessness where we have the intention of not harming. But if a gang of 10 or 20 people show up to our house at 2 a.m. in the morning, they're not here to deliver chocolates and flowers. They're here to cause harm and that's their decision. And if they get harmed in the process of that, that is their karma coming back to them. That's the results of their decisions. But in doing so, we should look to incur or to administer as least amount of harm as possible to provide defense and protection. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. No more questions, teacher. All right, so now we'll move on to the next chapter, chapter 13. Yes, uh, let's go to Kaila. Having done an action. Also, Rahula, after you have done an action with the body, you should reflect upon that same bodily action thus. Does this action that I have done with the body lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both? Was it an unwholesome bodily action with unwholesome consequences? with unwholesome results. When you reflect, if you know, this action that I have done with the body leads to my own harm, or to the harm of others, or to the harm of both. It was an unwholesome bodily action with unwholesome consequences, with unwholesome results. Then you should confess such a bodily action, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to your wise companions in the holy life. Having confessed it, revealed it, and laid it open, you should undertake restraint for the future. But when you reflect, if you know this action that I have done with the body does not lead to my own harm or to the harm of others or to the harm of both, it is a wholesome bodily action with wholesome consequences, wholesome results. You can reside peaceful and joyful, training day and night in wholesome states. All right. Thank you, Kayla. So here, this is what we were just talking about earlier, is that as you intend to do something, then you actually do it. And now we're talking about after you've done it, you can kind of reflect and you can look at any results or any consequences as a result of your bodily actions. And when you reflect on it, if you observe that it's a unwholesome bodily action with unwholesome consequences and unwholesome results, the Buddha is saying here that you should talk to your teacher about it, essentially, and let them know what you've experienced and what happened, because then you're able to actually receive guidance and understanding how to resolve that and ensure that it's not happening in the future. And what he's talking about here in terms of confessing it means to discuss it with your teacher. And in doing so, with having understood whether this bodily action was wholesome or unwholesome and how to resolve that, then the Buddha is saying, okay, you can restrain your mind in the future so that you don't actually experience this in the future. And then, of course, if it is wholesome, then you know, right? You build that wisdom slowly but surely. And then when you're doing wholesome things in the world, that's where the Buddha says you can reside peaceful and joyful. 
This is one of the reasons why an enlightened being's mind is so peaceful and joyful because they know with 100% certainty everything that they're doing is wholesome. They're making wholesome decision after wholesome decision after wholesome decision. And they've been doing that for a long time. Their life in the mind is very peaceful and very joyful because there's no harm coming back to them because they're not putting out any harmful things in the world. And this is where the mind can be at ease because you have this wisdom of knowing how to conduct yourself in the world. And you've been doing that for an extended period of time. That's why the teachings to attain enlightenment is not snap your fingers and immediately attain enlightenment. It's this gradual development of wisdom, this gradual training. And as you do, you'll see the discontentedness gradually diminish and you'll see harmful things coming back to you gradually diminish as well. You'll see more and more people around you will speak with you in polite, kind, friendly, and respectful ways because more and more that's how you're speaking with other people. And you gradually ramp down these unwholesome decisions and gradually ramp up the wholesome decisions. And that's where the mind becomes more and more peaceful and joyful because you can rest well at day and night knowing that you've only been doing wholesome things. And the Buddha talks about you can train here and ensure that you're only cultivating wholesome states in the mind and thus producing only wholesome decisions. Questions on this chapter? No question, All right, let's go to the next one, chapter 14. Do not be judgmental regarding people. The perfectly enlightened one said to the Venerable Ananda, by reason of the female household practitioner, Mijasala states disagreement to the fortunate one that her father, Purana, was celibate, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, but her paternal uncle, Isadatta, was not celibate, not abstaining from sexual intercourse, but lived a contented married life. When they died, the fortunate one also declared they attained to the state of a once returner and have been reborn in the Tusita group of heavenly beings. Judgmental people compare them, saying, this is one has just the same qualities as the other. So why is one worse and one better? This will be for their lasting harm and suffering. In this case, the person who is sweet-natured and has listened, learned, comprehended theoretically and found temporary freedom is better and finer than the other one. Why is that? Because the teachings stream carries him along. But who can know this different difference except the Tathagata? Therefore, Ananda, do not be judgmental regarding people. Do not pass judgment on people. Those who pass judgment on people harm themselves. I alone, or one like me, may pass judgment on people. Okay. So let's talk about a few things here. First of all, this is the Buddha in conversation with a female household practitioner who talks about her father, who essentially became celibate, and her uncle, her dad's brother, who was not celibate. And the Buddha is basically sharing that both of these two people had the same exact destination after rebirth. And 
this person is questioning the Buddha and saying, you know, that can't be, that can't be, you know, how can two different people that are doing something so drastically different end up in the same rebirth, which this rebirth is in this place in the heavenly realm, which is described by the Buddha as kind of like a waiting place for people to actually be reborn. It's not necessarily heaven directly or heaven itself. It's not a you know, a heavenly rebirth, it's kind of like a holding tank, so to speak, of waiting to be reborn. So that's why a once returner who is essentially going to come back to the human world one more time before attaining enlightenment, they will go to this place awaiting rebirth and then they will be reborn as a human being again. So here people are trying to judge and people are trying to figure this out. And the Buddha explains to them, you know, it would be unwise for you to essentially try to figure this out of what's going to happen with one person versus another person that only a Buddha, only the Tathagata could really know the difference to the level of detail to be able to figure out where individuals are actually being reborn. And he's saying, you know, don't judge people of what is right or what is wrong, where they're going to be reborn, because it's only going to harm you if you try to do that. And the Buddha is saying here, I alone or one like me may pass judgment on people. What he's talking about here is that not judging people in terms of having arrogance or pride or looking down on people, try to determine what's wholesome and unwholesome, because this would be arrogance. This would be conceit if somebody was judgmental towards another person. So we shouldn't be judgmental. But what the Buddha is saying in terms of judgment here is essentially determining what somebody's outcome will be at the time of death. Only a Buddha, essentially, he says, I alone or one like me, meaning him as a Tathagata, him as a Buddha, or a new Buddha, would be able to determine this where other people wouldn't be able to determine this because they wouldn't have the same wisdom, the same understanding to be able to determine these things. But even a Buddha himself doesn't go around trying to determine where somebody's going to be reborn. Instead, they're focused on sharing the teachings to help people get to enlightenment in this life. They're not necessarily telling people where they will or will not be reborn. In fact, I've seen a teaching from the Buddha where this same student of his, Ananda, was coming to him frequently after people died and kept asking the Buddha, you know, where is that person going to be reborn? Where is that person? Where is this person going to be reborn? And the Buddha finally says to him after he's answered his question on multiple situations, he says, you know, if you keep asking me all these questions about where people are going to be reborn, you're never going to get to understand the teachings so that you're not reborn. The goal is for you to get to enlightenment, not to worry about where other people are going to be reborn. So even a Buddha himself, even though he has the ability to be able to determine where people are being reborn or not, they're not really interested in focusing on that. They're more interested in focusing on sharing the teachings. So being judgmental is only going to cause harm to your own mind, to yourself. So the Buddha is encouraging people, don't judge others. And this is something that we learn growing up. But depending on what background you've come from, if you think that there is a supreme being that is judging people of who's right and who's wrong and sending them to either a bad place or a good place, if you've grown up thinking that way, then you might be trying to emulate that conduct or that behavior. That's not true. That's not what the supreme being of God actually does. But some people are actually taught that. 
So oftentimes people are trying to emulate those qualities and they start being judgmental in their own life. And when you start judging other people, you're only harming your own mind. So the Buddha is encouraging people not to do that. And even he himself, when he's talking about passing judgment here, he's really talking about determining where somebody is actually reborn, not the actual arrogance of looking down on people with conceit. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Well, do you consider observing others' uh, behavior as a kind of uh, uh, passing judgment or judging others? It can be helpful to observe other people's conduct and where you observe things that you feel like, oh, wow, I really like the way they said that or I really like the way they did that. I would like to incorporate that into my life practice. I would like to be more like that. That can be very wholesome. That can be very helpful for you in your practice. This is one of the reasons why it's really helpful to spend time with your teacher in person. And it's really helpful to spend time among your community of practitioners in person because you can see the teachings being modeled through their conduct. And then you can absorb some of that teaching through the way they conduct themselves in the world. You can learn sometimes a lot more that way than in a classroom setting like this. So observing what people are doing and incorporating that and choosing to incorporate it into your life is one thing, and that's really helpful. But looking at someone's practice and saying, oh, he's unwholesome or she's unwholesome or he's wholesome and he's unwholesome, this is what is going to lead to difficulties in your own mind and in your own practice. So understand the two different things. One is looking at someone's conduct to be able to glean some input to help you improve your practice. The other one is looking at someone's conduct and being degrading and judgmental and looking down or even up to people through your own mind. This can be harmful. This is where the conceit and the arrogance and the measuring and comparing of others comes into the mind. Well, so why looking up to someone is harmful to the mind? If you look up to somebody in terms of thinking that they're so high above you, then the mind will typically be shaken up when you're around that person. The mind's going to be uncalm. It's going to be unsteady. You can even have sweaty palms. You can have nervousness. You can have anxiety in the mind. Some people, if they think about a famous celebrity or a politician or somebody that they look up to, and if they actually meet this person, their mind can be very shaken up and unsettled as part of meeting this person. And then you're going to find it very difficult to have a wholesome relationship and have conversation that is purposeful and beneficial. Whereas if you just look at all beings as being equal, now you don't see yourself as below somebody and you don't also see yourself above somebody. Because if you place yourself below people and you look up to people in terms of placing yourself below them, then at some point you're also going to look at people as you being above others too. And you're going to be looking down to people. And then there's going to be this arrogance and pride that comes out in your intention, speech, and action. So if you allow the mind to put people above you and you look up to people, then you're also going to be looking down to people as well. But in terms of maybe admiring somebody's conduct or seeing them as a good role model and a good example in your life, that can be helpful that you see somebody, you observe their conduct and you're like, oh, wow, I really admire the way that they speak. I really admire the way that they conduct themselves with others. This can be helpful because, again, you can glean input to develop your own life practice. But it's when you put yourself below others and you're like, oh, they're so far 
above me that the mind can be shaken up and then now you also are going to put yourself above others in that situation if you allow the mind to put yourself below people it's only a matter of time before you put yourself above people as well so by practicing where you observe all people as equal we perform different roles different responsibilities in society but that doesn't mean that we're above or below people this is just the mind reverting to its animal consciousness where we're looking to have a pecking order because in a pack of wolves or a herd of elephants, there's a certain pecking order that we have in the animal world. And that mind from the animal world comes into the human world. And now we're looking for that pecking order of who's above us and who's below us. And this causes problems in the human world because then there's arrogance, pride, and this conceit and this judgment of each other. And then it just affects your ability to have helpful and productive personal and professional relationships. If you were putting yourself below somebody, you would probably appear that you lack confidence and people would have trouble trusting you. And then this is going to impact your ability to maybe have wholesome opportunities in life to progress in life. If people appear to lack confidence and lack trust, then people aren't going to have confidence in you and people aren't going to trust you. So therefore, when a new project or something comes up that could potentially be beneficial for your life, people aren't going to think about you as a person to involve in this project because you're lacking confidence in yourself. Therefore, they're going to lack confidence in you and then people aren't going to trust you as well. So a, are you saying that when one is looking up or down to others, the mind is not in the middle? But when one is admiring a role model or a teacher or what the Buddha called senior uh, students, here the mind is in the middle. It can be in the middle, yes. If you look at it that way, if you just, if you would like to use the word admire like I used, or if you would like to kind of see this person as a role model, that's one thing. That, wow, I really like the way that they practice these teachings and I would like to kind of model my practice after what they do. But in there, you need to ensure that the mind isn't putting yourself below them, thinking that they're so high above you, because that's what's destructive to the mind. And it's only a matter of time before you put yourself above them as well, or another person, you put yourself above them. So by maintaining the middle, where you can observe various qualities of various people's minds, and then maybe incorporate that into your practice, that can be really helpful for you. Thanks, teacher. That's good, Amanda. Yes, this is related to the questions that Asim just asked. Um, how can a practitioner be sure that they're using discernment as opposed to judgment? If there's judgment, you're going to feel that you're either above people with arrogance, conceit, and pride, or you're going to feel that you're below people and you're going to be looking up to people. You're going to be nervous around certain people. Like I mentioned, your palms may even get sweaty or you may even have some anxiety or stress in the mind about potentially meeting this person or being around this person. Discernment is wise decision making where you're making wise decisions and you should observe that the mind should be calm and steady and peaceful. In the other situations where you're putting yourself above or below people, the mind's not going to be calm and steady and stable. It's going to be shaken up in those situations. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. No more questions, teacher. All right, so we'll go to chapter 17, or I'm sorry, 16, no, 15, <laughs> chapter 15. 
Yes, uh, the next volunteer is Miranda. Discontentedness is dependently arisen. On one occasion, I was residing right here in Rajagaha in the bamboo grove, the squirrel sanctuary. Then in the morning, I dressed and taking bowl and robe, I entered Rajagaha for alms food. Then it occurred to me, it is still too early to walk for alms food in Rajagaha. Let me go to the park of the wanderers of other communities. Then I went to the park of the wanderers of other communities. I exchanged greetings with those wanderers and when we had concluded our greetings and cordial talk, I sat down to one side. The wanderers then said to me as I was sitting to one side, friends, some ascetics and Brahmins, proponents of Kama, maintain that discontentedness is created by oneself. Some ascetics and Brahmins, proponents of Kama, maintain that discontentedness is created by another. Some ascetics and Brahmins, proponents of Kama, maintain that discontentedness is created both by oneself and by another. Some ascetics and Brahmins, proponents of Kama, maintain that discontentedness has arisen randomly, being created neither by oneself nor by another. Now, what does the ascetic Gautama say about this? What does he teach? How should we answer if we are to state what has been said by the, the ascetic Gautama and not misrepresent him with what is contrary to the truth? And how should we explain in accordance with the teachings so that no reasonable consequence of our assertion would give us ground, would give ground for criticism? I have said, Nanda, that discontentedness is dependent, dependently arisen. Dependent on what? Dependent on contact. If one were to speak thus, one would be stating what has been said by me and would not misrepresent me with what is contrary. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So this goes back to the dependent origination. If you remember from Volume 5, Chapter 14, we talked about dependent origination in those 12 steps that the Buddha explains that leads to discontentedness. So it goes from ignorance to volitional formations to consciousness and so forth and so on, where there's contact that then leads to feelings, that leads to craving and clinging and so forth. So the Buddha is making it very clear here that this gamma is being produced by contact. It's dependent on contact. I think we studied this in last week's class where the Buddha talks about producing gamma or the results of our decisions is based on contact. Well, discontentedness itself, it really needs all those things independent origination in order to arise discontentedness. But the Buddha is talking about one aspect of dependent origination because as we know, discontentedness arises because of craving desire attachment that's what actually causes discontentedness but if there is no contact through the six sense bases then you never get discontentedness so the buddha is saying here that you have to have contact through the six sense bases the eyes ears nose tongue bodily contact or the mind that contact is what ultimately is going to produce feelings because of the craving desire attachment that's in there. So we work to eliminate craving desire attachment because even when the mind is enlightened, you're still gonna have contact through the six sense bases. But when the mind has this agreeable aspect of what it's looking for through the six sense bases, 
that's where it's going to have pleasant feelings. And when it experiences contact through the six sense bases that is disagreeable, that's where the mind's going to have painful feelings that arise. But without contact through the six sense bases, then there isn't going to be any discontentedness. But you can still have contact through the six sense bases. And if there's craving, desire, attachment there, there's going to be discontentedness. If we eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, we can still have contact, but no discontentedness. Questions on this chapter? No questions, Mr. Teacher. All right. So now we'll move on to chapter 16. Walking the middle way, two extremes that should not be followed. Monks, these two extremes should not be followed by one who has gone forth into homelessness. What to? The pursuit of sensual happiness and sensual pleasures, which is low, vulgar, the way of worldings, not honorable, unbeneficial, and the pursuit of self mortification, which is painful, not honorable, unbeneficial, without veering towards either of these extremes, the Tathagata has awakened to the middle way, which gives rise to vision, which gives rise to wisdom, which leads to peace, to direct knowledge, experience, to enlightenment, to Nibbana. And what marks <clears throat> is that middle way awakened to by the Tathagata, which gives rise to vision, which leads to Nibbana, enlightenment. It is this noble eightfold path, which is right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. All right. Thanks, Basim. So here, this is the Buddha talking about the middle way. He talks about it in other parts of his teachings as well. And he describes the two sides of the spectrum, this central happiness or these central pleasures. And then he also talks about the self-mortification or causing harm to the physical body. And he's saying these are two extremes. And he experienced these, right? When he was the prince in the royal family, he experienced central happiness through central pleasures because that's what he was getting when he had wealth and he had power and prestige and his father was embellishing him with all kinds of central pleasures. But then when he left the palace, those first two teachers that he studied with, they were teaching self-mortification, this painful method of uh, starving the body and hanging the body upside down from trees and piercing the body with various metal implements and things like this. And they thought that this is how you attain enlightenment by overcoming the physical pain of the body. And the Buddha realized as part of his journey that neither of these two methods will actually bring about peacefulness or calmness, serenity, contentedness, or joy that is permanent in the mind. And instead, he taught this middle way and progressing on this middle way. And that's what gives rise to this vision or being able to see clearly these natural laws of existence. This is what gives rise to this wisdom, to peace, to direct knowledge. And what is that middle way? Well, it's the Eightfold Path. That's what leads to enlightenment, practicing each of these steps as a part of your comprehensive, well-developed life practice. That's where you're able to actually train the mind and get to enlightenment, not this indulgence in central pleasures, not in this 
harmful things that we're doing to the physical body, but finding the middle. And while the Eightfold Path helps you to understand that middle and practice that on a consistent, long-term basis, you can apply this same teaching to all parts of your life, whether it's finances or any other aspect of your life, you can look to see, you know, are you being indulgent? Are you going too far? Is the mind craving and wanting lots of luxury? Or are you also kind of starving yourself and not really giving yourself what you really need to be successful in life? And then finding that middle, you know, where is that middle for you? And then navigate that and understand the ebb and flow of that middle. And that's what the Buddha is talking about here. But namely, it's the Eightfold Path that is going to help you to discover that middle. And then when you the mind is there in the middle, you'll know that it's in the middle because the mind will be peaceful. It'll be calm, serene, and content with joy. If you're noticing a lot of stress, a lot of anxiety, then there's craving, desire, attachment there. The mind's holding on too tight. If you're noticing like dullness, laziness, lethargic condition, then the mind is too complacent. It's not going to be fully satisfied there, just like it's not fully satisfied when there's lots of craving, desire, attachment. It's only when the mind is perfectly tuned to the middle that it's going to experience this peace and this joy come into the mind that is almost going to take a breath and be like, ah, this feels perfect right here. And that's how you know that the mind is in the middle. Questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. So here uh, you're saying that self-mortification will not lead to purifying the mind or will not lead to uh, enlightenment. Exactly. Whenever we're trying to cause physical pain to the body, that's just physical pain to the body. It's not going to produce beneficial results in the mind. And this is why when I teach meditation, for example, I always share that if you're experiencing any pain during your meditation, that you should just shift the body and adjust the body because the pain in the physical body, you're always going to experience pain in the physical body. Even when the mind is enlightened, there's still going to be physical pain. But an enlightened being is going to process that pain very differently than an unenlightened being. An unenlightened being is going to experience the physical pain. And they're also going to experience mental pain as well, which is going to intensify the sensation of pain that's coming into the physical body. But a enlightened being is going to experience the physical pain. They're going to know that it's impermanent. And they're not going to allow the mind to be shaken up by it. So they're not going to experience the mental pain as a result of the physical pain. So anytime you're experiencing physical pain, the mind has to understand that it's impermanent and not allow the mind to be shaken up by it. And then just take corrective action to fix it. So if you have stood next to a hot fire or to a stove and you've burned the physical body, and you've yanked the body back really quick and then you started cussing or getting upset or frustrated or irritated because of this physical pain, that's the mental pain. And now it's motivating speech that is unwholesome because the mind doesn't know how to process this physical pain of experiencing this burning sensation on your hand, for example. But an enlightened being or someone close to enlightenment who's under training, they can experience that heat from the stove, they can yank their body back, but then they understand that that's impermanent and they're just going to take wise decisions to now treat the burn to their hand 
and any kind of shaking up of the mind or frustration or anger or hostility, a person who's close to enlightenment or enlightened, they know that that's not going to produce any beneficial results. So they'll just experience the painful bodily sensation and save themselves the intensified pain because their mind won't experience this shaking up when they experience physical pain. So physical pain isn't going to produce beneficial results to the mind. So if you're in meditation or you're doing any other things, you should try to take heave of that. That's your body telling you there's something wrong here and fix it. In some cases, people are taught to just breathe through the pain and allow the pain to soak in and these kind of things. And I don't necessarily agree with this because if the body is experiencing pain, it's sending that pain sensation to the mind for a reason and saying, you need to change position here. You need to adjust the body. And as I mentioned, even an enlightened being, fully enlightened, is still going to experience physical pain of the body because we need that in order to take corrective action if the body's ever in harm's way. Well, so it seems that uh, people at the time of Gautama Buddha didn't have a unified or a single definition for enlightenment. So they thought that self-mortification or body mortification will lead to enlightenment while it didn't. Yeah, the only person who's going to understand 100% of what enlightenment is and what it isn't is someone who's actually enlightened and a fully perfectly enlightened Buddha is going to know what enlightenment is and what it isn't. They're going to be able to be very clear and direct about what enlightenment is and isn't. And then they're going to be able to guide students to experience that same mental state of enlightenment. But other people may assume they're enlightened or think they're enlightened, maybe profess that they're enlightened, maybe be boastful that they are enlightened, but yet they don't really 100% know what enlightenment is and there can be disagreement on that. So during the lifetime of the Buddha, just like now, different people have different perspectives on what enlightenment is and isn't. And that's why in this first volume of this book series, I dedicate a chapter very early in the book, chapter three, to clearly describe what enlightenment is and what it isn't so that on this journey, you understand what it is that you're going towards so that then you can accurately move towards that goal. If somebody was on the journey to attain enlightenment, and they had no clue what enlightenment is, or they're just assuming they know what enlightenment is, they're going to find it very difficult to actually attain enlightenment because they don't know what it is. So as part of learning with any teacher, a teacher should be able to articulate very clearly what enlightenment is, because then with that goal in mind, you can move towards it. And a Buddha would be able to articulate that. Someone who's enlightened would be able to articulate that. And it has nothing to do with causing physical pain to the body. Thanks, teacher. No more questions. All right. So we'll go to chapter 17. Best unwholesome actions cannot be exhausted with the performance of piercing austerities, harshness. Now, Mahanama. On one occasion, I was living at Rajagaha on the mountain Vulture Peak. On that occasion, a number of Niganthas living on the Black Rock on the slopes of Izigeli were practicing continuous standing, rejecting seats, and were experiencing painful, agonizing, 
piercing feelings due to effort. Then, when it was evening, I rose from meditation and went to the Nigathas there. I asked them, friends, why do you practice continuous standing, rejecting seats, and experience painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to effort? When this was said, they replied, friend, the Nigantha Nataputa is omniscient and all-knowing and claims to have complete wisdom and vision. Thus, whether I am walking or standing or sleep or awake, wisdom and vision are continuously and uninterpretedly present to me. He says thus, Nigantha's, you have done unwholesome actions in the past. Exhaust them with the performance of piercing, piercing austerities. And when you are here and now, restrained in body, speech, and mind, that is doing no unwholesome action for the future. So by, by obliterating them with asceticism, past actions, and by doing no fresh actions, there will be no consequence in the future. With no consequence in the future, there is destruction of action. With the destruction of action, there is the destruction of discontentedness. With the destruction of discontentedness, there is the destruction of feeling. With the destruction of feeling, all discontentedness will be exhausted. This is the doctrine we approve of and accept, and we are satisfied with it. When this was said, I told them, but friends, do you know that you existed in the past and that is not the case that you did not exist? No friend. But friends, do you know that you did unwholesome actions in the past and did not abstain from them? No friend. But friends, do you know that you did such and such unwholesome actions? No friend. But friends, do you know that so much discontentedness has already been exhausted, or that so much discontentedness has still to be exhausted, or that when so much discontentedness has been exhausted, all discontentedness will have been exhausted? No friend. But friends, do you know what the abandoning of unwholesome states is? and what the cultivation of, of wholesome states is here and now? No friend. So friends, it seems that you do not know that you existed in the past and that it is not the case that you did not exist or that you did unwholesome actions in the past and did not abstain from them or that you did such and such unwholesome actions or that so much discontentedness has already been exhausted, or that so much discontentedness has still to be exhausted, or that when so much discontentedness has been exhausted, all discontentedness will have been exhausted, or what the abandoning of unwholesome states is, and what the cultivation of wholesome states is here and now. That being so, those who are murderers, bloody-handed, evildoers in the world, 
when they are reborn among human beings, go forth into homelessness as Nigantas. Okay, thank you, Basum. So here, the Buddha actually is coming into contact with a group of people who they claim their master teacher is essentially enlightened. And he observes that they're rejecting seats, that they're continuously standing, they're experiencing these painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to the effort that they're exhibiting. And when he talks to them, he says that this is how they're going to extinguish their unwholesome gamma, essentially, is by performing these harsh activities, that that's going to extinguish the unwholesome things that they've done in the past. And the Buddha helps them to see that it's not going to extinguish your discontentedness, that by you actually performing unwholesome things and in the past, you didn't know what was unwholesome and you didn't know what was wholesome. You didn't have the wisdom of making the decision of what was unwholesome and what was wholesome. And now by you performing these harshness to the body and causing and inflicting pain to the body, that's not going to allow you to develop the wisdom to go off and make wise decisions to only do wholesome things. This painful, agonizing things that you're doing to the body, it's just going to produce more and more pain and more and more infliction of pain. It's not going to actually cultivate the wisdom in the mind so that you can go off in the world and now make wise decisions about your conduct. So when the Buddha questions them about you know, what they do know and what they don't know, they reply that they don't know these things. Essentially, what they know is just to stand there and inflict all this pain or do all these other harsh treatments to the body. And they think that this is what's going to actually eliminate discontentedness. And this last question that you see the Buddha asking here is, do you know what the abandoning of unwholesome states is and what the cultivation of wholesome states is here and now? And they say, no, we don't know. So how are they ever going to get to producing only wholesome results in their life if they're trying to just cause harm to the physical body? They're not cultivating wisdom about what is unwholesome and what is wholesome. So therefore, even after they're done causing all this physical pain to the body, they'll go out into the world and still make unwholesome decisions and there'll still be unwholesome results as a result of them lacking the wisdom. So the Buddha is saying here at the end that when people are murderers, bloody-handed and evildoers, they actually die and they're reborn into this group of people because it's such a harsh type of living that these people who are murderers, they're not going to be reborn in a good destination. They're going to be reborn into a bad destination. And the Buddha is saying a bad destination is among these people who are performing these harsh activities, thinking that somehow that's going to improve their life when it really isn't. Questions on this chapter? Yes, teacher. Would you be kind to explain more about the difference between wholesome and unwholesome on one side and good and bad decisions on the other side? You said wholesome and unwholesome decisions on one side and good and bad on the other side. I tend to use the terms wholesome and unwholesome because all too often we use this word good and bad. And I feel that this good and bad word, it doesn't really fully capture what 
the Buddha is talking about here because in terms of wholesome and unwholesome, we're cultivating certain wholesome qualities and we're eliminating certain unwholesome qualities. If we're made to think that we're good or bad, this can have a real negative impact to the mind. So in the past, when I used to use alcohol, for example, I don't think somebody who uses alcohol is bad. I don't think of them as a bad person. I think of it as they might be making unwise decisions, just like I did when I used to drink alcohol in the past. I was making unwise decisions, but I wasn't a bad person. I was just making unwise decisions. I was making unwholesome decisions, right? And then when we choose to eliminate certain aspects of our life practice, like alcohol, we don't, I don't think of it as, oh, this person's good because they've eliminated alcohol. I just think of it as, okay, they're making wise choices in their producing wholesome results as part of that. So if we start saying good or bad, I think this becomes much more judgmental when we're uh, looking at the various qualities that the Buddha is guiding us to cultivate. And if we look at ourselves as good and bad, I think it can be very deflating and very diminishing. Where if we understand wholesome and unwholesome, wise and unwise, then of course we would aspire to be wise and make wholesome decisions that lead to wholesome results. By eliminating the aspect of good and bad, I think it helps to cultivate a mind that is more conducive to gradually moving towards wise, wholesome decisions. Well, in some situations, it seems that what is wholesome is not exactly the same as uh, like what is good or the right. So uh, if one is walking in the street and seeing two people fighting, maybe one will think like, okay, I will go and try to talk to them. This is the right thing to do. But actually, this may cause some unwholesome results. So do you agree that sometimes what is wholesome is not exactly the same as what one thinks is good or right? I don't necessarily agree with that because I don't necessarily see going to break up a fight as being good. I don't see it that way. A lot of people use the word good and bad in relationship to the Buddhist teachings. They'll translate, you know, good gamma, bad gamma, good actions, bad actions. But for me, when I put together these books and the word choices that I used, I just used wholesome and unwholesome in all situations because I think it produces a better mindset. So I don't agree that going to break up a fight would be good and it can produce unwholesome results. I don't think of it that way. Well, thanks, teacher. No more questions. Okay. Chapter 18. Let's go to Miranda. Pleasure and discontentedness did not only caused by what was done in the past. Again, monks, I said to the Nagantas, what do you think, friend Nagantas? When there is an intense effort, intense striving, do you then feel painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort? But when there is no intense effort, no intense striving, do you then not feel any painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort? When there is intense effort, friend Gautama, intense striving, then we feel painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort. But when there is no intense effort, no intense striving, then we do not feel any painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort. So it seems, friend Nagantas, that when there is intense effort, 
you feel painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort. But when there is no intense effort, you do not feel any painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort. That being so, it is not fitting for the venerable Nagantas to declare whatever this person feels, whether pleasure or pain, or neither pleasure, pain nor pleasure. All that is caused by what was done in the past. So by obliterating them with asceticism, past actions, and by doing no fresh actions, there will be no consequence in the future. With no consequence, all discontentedness will be exhausted. If, friend Nagantas, when there was intense effort, intense striving, then painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort were present. And when there was no intense effort, no intense striving, then painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort were still present. That being so, it would be fitting for the Venerable Nagantas to declare, whatever this person feels, all discontentedness will be exhausted. But since, friend Nagantas, when there is intense effort, intense striving, then you feel painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort. But when there is no intense effort, no intense striving, then you do not feel painful, agonizing, piercing feelings due to intense effort. You are therefore feeling only the painful, agonizing, piercing feelings of your self-imposed effort. And it is through ignorance, unknowing, and delusion that you mistakenly hold whatever this person feels all discontentedness will be exhausted. Speaking thus, monks, I did not see any legitimate defense of their position by the Nagantas. Again, monks, I said to the Nagantas, what do you think, friend Nagantas? Is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced here and now can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced in the next life? No, friend. But is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced in the next life can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced here and now? No, friend. What do you think, friend Nagantas? Is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced as pleasant can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced as painful? No, friend. But is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced as painful can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced as pleasant? No, friend. What do you think, friend Nagantas? Is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced in matured personality can, by effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced in an unmatured personality? No, friend. But is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced in an unmatured personality can, by effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced in a matured personality? No, friend. What do you think, friend Nagantas? Is it possible that an action whose result is to be much experienced can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be little, little experienced? No, friend. But is it possible that an action whose result is to be little experienced can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be much experienced? No, friend. What do you think, friend Nagantas? Is it possible that an action whose result is to be experienced can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is not to be experienced? No, friend. 
But is it possible that an action whose result is not, is not to be experienced can, through effort and striving, become one whose result is to be experienced? No, friend. Miranda, you, so, don't, you don't need to read all of this because this is just repeating everything you just read. So then you can just skip to here. Thank you, sir. Let's see. Uh, probably this last line. So everything you just said, that being so. Um, the Venerable Naganta's effort is fruitless. Their striving is fruitless. Right. So now that the now that the Buddha had them answer all those questions and they said no, 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 then basically the Buddha is saying, okay, everything that you're doing is fruitless. It's no benefit. Okay. Yes, sir. So speak the Nagantas, monks, and because the Nagantas speak thus, these ten legitimate deductions from their assertions provide grounds for advising them. Thus their effort is fruitless, their striving is fruitless. And how is their effortless, fruitful? Monks, how is striving fruitful? Here, monks, a monk is not overwhelmed by discontentedness and does not overwhelm himself with discontentedness. And he does not give up the pleasure that accords with the teachings. <coughs> Excuse me. Yet he is not obsessed with that pleasure. He knows thus, when I strive with determinations, particular source of discontentedness fades away in me because of that determined striving. And when I look on with equanimity, this particular source of discontentedness fades away in me while I develop equanimity. He strives with determination in regard to that particular source of discontentedness which fades away in him because of that determined striving. And he develops equanimity in regard to that particular source of discontentedness which fades away in him while he is developing equanimity. When he strives with, with determination, such and such a source of discontentedness fades away in him because of that determined striving. Thus that discontentedness is exhausted in him. When he looks on with equanimity, such and such a source of discontentedness fades away in him while he develops equanimity. Thus that discontentedness is exhausted in him. Again, monks, a monk considers thus, while I live according to my pleasure, unwholesome states increase in me and wholesome states diminish. But when I exert myself in what is painful, unwholesome states diminish in me and wholesome states increase. What if I exert myself in what is painful? He exerts himself in what is painful. When he does so, unwholesome states diminish in him and wholesome states increase. At a later time, he does not exert himself in what is painful. Why is that? The purpose for which that monk exerted himself in what is painful has been achieved. That is why at a later time he does not exert himself in what is painful. Thus too, monks, the effort is fruitful, the striving is fruitful. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So there's a lot for us to break down in this teaching and, and really dissect and talk about. This first part, the Buddha is explaining how essentially this first entire page, he's helping the individual see that the only time that they're experiencing these painful, agonizing, piercing feelings is due to their own effort, their own striving, their own infliction of pain on the physical body. Their teaching or their assertion is that every pain that they experience in the mind is based on things that they did in the past. And they think that based on everything they did in the past, that's why they're experiencing painful feelings in their mind right now. 
But the Buddha is saying, but hold on a second. When you're exerting yourself in striving through these painful, harsh things that you're doing, like standing, not sitting down and doing these other things, aren't you experiencing pain at that time? And they're like, yeah. And when you stop doing those things, you're not experiencing any more pain, right? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, okay, well, all of this pain that you're talking about is self-imposed. Here it is right here. He's saying that, you know, essentially these painful, agonizing, piercing feelings isn't based on what you did in the past. It's based on what you're doing right now, standing here and not taking a seat and putting the body in all these harmful things. That's what's causing all the discontentedness in the mind. That's what's causing the painful feelings is what you're doing right now. So then he goes through and he asks them these various questions and helping them to see that their premise and their teaching and what they're practicing is really far from the truth because every time the Buddha asks them one of these questions, they're like, no, 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 answering all these questions. And then ultimately the Buddha recounts all that and says, well, since you answered no to all those things, what you're doing is very fruitless. It's not actually leading to any results whatsoever. And the Buddha then says, okay, well, how can you make this effort that you're putting forth, this striving that you're putting forth, how can you help it to become fruitful or beneficial? So here he says, this is very key. He says, here monks, a monk is not overwhelmed by discontentedness and does not overwhelm himself with discontentedness. So when discontentedness comes into the mind, the Buddha is saying, don't be overwhelmed by it right? If you understand that it's craving, desire, attachment that's causing this, you don't have to be overwhelmed by the discontentedness. You can just understand what's causing it. And then he says also, don't overwhelm yourself with discontentedness, which is essentially what those other people are doing is they're overwhelming themselves with discontentedness by putting their body into these harmful situations. And then this is also key. This is something that's really misunderstood a lot in the Buddhist world. He says, and he does not give up the pleasure that accords with the teachings, yet he is not obsessed with that pleasure. Oftentimes people think that in order to get to enlightenment, that you don't have any pleasures in your life. Because when you think about what it really takes to get to enlightenment, if people are attached to alcohol and drugs, they're like, I have to give up alcohol and drugs. Well, how am I going to get any pleasure? Right? So you actually experience plenty of enjoyment when the mind is enlightened, actually way more enjoyment than when you're in the unenlightened state, because in the unenlightened state, you're still experiencing anger and sadness and frustration and irritation, guilt and shame and fear and boredom and loneliness and all these other discontent feelings. So your mind is shaken up quite a bit at different times in the unenlightened state. But once you move the mind to the enlightened mental state, and yes, there are certain things that you need to let go of, but the mind is going to be beyond pleasure and pain, is how the Buddha describes it. And here he's saying he does not give up the pleasure that accords with the teachings. So you can still enjoy certain things, but instead of enjoying drugs and alcohol or having sexual misconduct and having sex with many people and things like this, you learn to find pleasure in things that are wholesome. And that's what the Buddha is saying is that he does not give up the pleasure that accords with the teachings. There are certain things 
that you can do plenty of pleasurable things and the mind will enjoy those things, but it's based on the wholesomeness of these teachings. But yet when you experience that enjoyment, he does not obsess with that pleasure. That's the clinging, the craving, the holding on to it. So when you experience enjoyment as the mind is moving to this enlightened mental state, you experience enjoyment that is not these unwholesome things. You don't take pleasure in the unwholesome things. But when you experience that enjoyment in the enlightened state, you don't cling and you don't crave and you don't obsess over that pleasure, wanting it to continue. You understand the middle way that you can enjoy certain aspects of life, but it's when you cling or hold on to it or obsess about it, that's where it leads to painful feelings. So finding that middle where you can enjoy all the various aspects of life, but you don't cling to it or hold on to it. An example might be my son and I, we occasionally go play mini golf because he likes to play mini golf and they have a restaurant there and we eat food and we play mini golf together. It's quite enjoyable to go experience this quality time with my son and you can enjoy that while you're doing it. But the mind doesn't obsess over it, wanting it to continue and continue and do it every weekend or just really obsessing about it. It's you enjoy it while you're enjoying it. And then when it's done, it's over with. Right. And that would be a pleasure that accords with the teachings because there's nothing harmful or unwholesome about going to eat food and play mini golf with my son. But it's only when the mind obsesses about that, that that's when it's going to cause discontentedness and painful feelings. So that's what the Buddha's describing here is to not be overwhelmed by discontentedness and also don't allow the mind to be overwhelmed with discontentedness. And then as we read further in here, what else is the Buddha talking about? He's talking about equanimity a lot, of course, here. But I think there were some other things that he was describing here. Okay, so here he's talking about, he starts getting to talk about, again, monks. A monk considers thus, while I live according to my pleasure, unwholesome states arise, they increase in me, and wholesome states diminish. So if the mind is craving pleasure, then there's going to be these unwholesome states that arise and wholesome states diminish. But when I exert myself in what is painful, unwholesome states diminish in me and wholesome states increase. What he's talking about here is not physical pain. He's talking about mental pleasure and mental pain. So if you're attached to something, if you're having craving, desire, attachment to something, and you start pulling away from that, that can be very painful. And as you do that, the unwholesome states of craving, desire, attachment diminish. Anger, hatred, ill will diminishes. Ignorance, unknowing of true reality diminishes. And wholesome states increase. So the painful part that the Buddha is talking about here is not physical pain. He's talking about the struggle of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And that can be very painful. For example, if you have children, since we're talking about children, and you're trying to eliminate your attachment to them, it can be really painful to step away and allow them to kind of go out on their own and experience certain aspects of their life. Parents have a lot of pain around that. Or if you have a life partner or your parents 
and you're training the mind to let go and not to have this craving and desire for them to be a certain way. That can be very painful for you. But in experiencing that, then the unwholesome states of craving, desire, attachment diminish and the wholesome states start to increase. That's what the Buddha is talking about here. So he says, what if I exert myself in what is painful? He exerts himself in what is painful. And when he does so, unwholesome states diminish in him and wholesome states increase. So this is the type of painful striving that the Buddha is encouraging and providing guidance to experience is this painful striving of eliminating craving, desire, attachment. And then he says here, he says, at a later time, he does not exert himself in what is painful, right? So after you've eliminated craving, desire, attachment, and you know that the mind is liberated from those craving, desire, attachments, he no longer exerts himself in those painful things. Well, why is that? The purpose for which the monk exerted himself in what is painful has been achieved, so once you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment, and that's very painful when you're experiencing that, well, then in certain situations, you can then start to move forward with something. So let me give you an example. So my son grew up sleeping with his mom in the same bed together since they, he was born. They slept together all the time. We bought him a crib and things like this, but he never actually slept in it. So he got used to growing up and sleeping with his mom all the time. But when I started observing this, that he would become discontent when he couldn't sleep with his mom, I started helping him to learn how to sleep by himself. And when he did that, it was very painful for him. For about three months or six months, there was you know, a decreasing of pain, but it was very painful for him to separate himself from sleeping with his mom on a regular daily basis. But then once we observed that he was past that pain and his mind was no longer discontent by not sleeping with his mom and sleeping by himself, then once he had eliminated the craving, desire, attachment, we were comfortable that he had done that. Then he decided that he would like to sleep with his mom. But then in doing so, now that he sleeps, still sleeps with his mom, he's eliminated his craving, desire, attachment. Because there's times where we've said, yeah, you can't sleep with your mom today. And he's like, all right, I'll just go sleep by myself. And we can see that his mind was liberated on that particular topic. Because in other situations, we were like, you can't sleep with your mom today. He would start crying and he would be upset. And that's how we knew there was still craving, desire, attachment there. So the Buddha is explaining in these two paragraphs that you exert yourself in what is painful, take on that struggle of eliminating the craving, desire, attachments. And then once you've exerted yourself and you strive to eliminate those, then you might do something like choose to sleep with your mom because you just prefer to sleep with your mom, but you're no longer craving it. Or for example, if we would like to use another example, say you find that you just have this craving for chocolate brownies and you want to eat chocolate brownies all the time. And when there's no chocolate brownies, you're angry or you're frustrated or you're sad. Well, you need to go through the painful experience of eliminating that craving, desire, attachment. But then once you do, you can come back and start eating chocolate brownies and chocolate cake again. There's no problem with eating chocolate brownies and chocolate cake, but you have to go through that pain of eliminating the craving, desire, attachment first, 
and then you can actually come back to it. That's what the Buddha is actually talking about here. So he says, exerting himself in what is painful has been achieved. That is why at a later time, he does not exert himself in what is painful because it's no longer painful. Because once you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment to sleep with your mom, or once you eliminate the craving, desire, attachment to have chocolate cake, it's no longer painful when you don't have that. So you don't have to exert yourself in continuing to not sleep with your mom or continuing to not eat chocolate brownies. You no longer have to do that because you've eliminated the craving, desire, attachment to doing that. So the Buddha is saying this is the type of effort that is fruitful. This is the type of striving that is fruitful and beneficial, not this physical pain inflicted on the physical body, just in terms of harshness and causing physical pain to the body. Instead, strive to eliminate these craving, desire, attachments, which will be painful. As long as the mind's holding on to this pleasure, then the, you can't observe the painful aspect of what the mind's holding on to. So separating yourself from those craving, desire, attachments, it will be painful. But then once you observe that the mind has eliminated the craving, desire, attachment, then there are certain things like brownies or sleeping with your mom that you'll be able to do. Now, you'll never go back to drinking alcohol or snorting cocaine or any of these kind of things because we know those are unwholesome and they lead to unwholesome results. But there's other things like what I'm describing that the mind can be attached to that once it eliminates those attachments, then you can actually go back to enjoying those things again. So that's what he's discussing here. Questions on this chapter? No question, teacher. All right. So now we go to chapter 19. All that is caused by what was done in the past. Monks, there are these three sectarian tenets which, when questioned, interrogated and cross-examined by the wise and taken to their conclusion, will remain stuck in a doctrine of inaction. What are the three? One, there are monks, some ascetics and Brahmins, who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by what was done in the past. Two, there are other ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. Three, and there are, there are still other ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that occurs without a cause or condition. Monks, I approached those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by past deeds. And I said to them, is it true that you, venerable ones, hold such a doctrine and view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is due to past deeds that you might destroy life, 
take what is not given, indulge in sexual activity, speak falsehood, produce argumentative speech, speak harshly, indulge in idle chatter, that you might be full of longing, have a mind of ill will, and hold wrong view. Those who fall back on past deeds as the essential truth have no interest to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded, they do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation ascetic could not be legitimately applied to them. All right. Thanks, Bossum. Here we're going to see three chapters, starting with chapter 19, that describes these three things that the Buddha is observing, that there's different groups of communities and teachers who are teaching that all discontentedness, pleasure, pain, neither pain nor pleasure, is as a result of things we did in the past. And the Buddha says, that's not true. It's not true because we know it's craving, desire, attachment that causes discontentedness. And then there's these other aesthetics in Brahman who say that everything that we experience in terms of discontentedness, pleasure, pain, neither pain nor pleasure, is caused by God's creative activity. And the Buddha is going to say, no, that's not true either. And then the third one, which is really destructive, is that all the discontentedness that is experienced, neither pleasure, pain, neither pain nor pleasure, it occurs without a cause or condition. It's just by happenstance that all of this emotions come up in the mind, all these feelings arise in the mind. And the Buddha is essentially walking through and saying, anybody who thinks this way is not even an aesthetic. They're not even somebody who's really on this path to enlightenment because they don't even understand what the real cause of discontentedness is. Because the path to enlightenment is to eliminate discontentedness. And how could you eliminate it if you don't even know what the cause is? So if somebody thinks that the cause of discontentedness is based on our past deeds or our past actions, you have no way of actually eliminating it because everything's based on the past. Or if somebody thinks that it's because of God's creative activity, you have no way of actually eliminating it. And if you think that there is no cause or condition that's creating discontentedness, then you have no way of eliminating it because you don't know what the cause and condition is. So therefore, how could you even really be considered on the path to enlightenment as an aesthetic if you don't even know the most basic, most fundamental teaching that is the cause of discontentedness is craving desire attachment? So we're going to see three chapters here that highlight this point more and more clearly. Questions on this chapter? All right, so we'll go into the last chapter for today, which is chapter 20. All this caused by God's creative action. Then months, I approached those ascetics and Brahmins who hold such a doctrine and view as this. Whatever this person experiences, whether pleasure, pain, or neither pain nor pleasure, all that is caused by God's creative activity. And I said to them, is it true that you venerable ones hold such a doctrine and view? When I ask them this, they affirm it. Then I say to them, in such a case, it is due to God's creative activity 
that you might destroy life. Take what is not given. Indulge in sexual activity. Speak falsehood. Produce argumentative speech. Speak harshly. Indulge in idle chatter that you might be full of longing. Have a mind of ill will and hold wrong view. Those who fall back to God, on God's creative activity as the essential truth have no choice to do what should be done and to avoid doing what should not be done, nor do they make an effort in this respect. Since they do not apprehend as true and valid anything that should be done or should not be done, they are muddle-minded. They do not guard the mind, and even the personal designation ascetic could not be legitimately applied to them. Okay, so this is a continuation of the same discourse from before, where he's just going into talk about as it relates to God, that if somebody holds the view that God is the one who causes everything that's happening around us, particularly the discontentedness in the mind, then the Buddha is saying that you can't even legitimately consider yourself on the path to enlightenment because it's your own actions that is causing all this harm in the world and then you experience the harm coming back to you. This is the natural law of gamma. So here he's helping people to understand that it's not God that is causing or controlling all the various things that happen in the world. It's our own decisions. That's what the natural law of gamma is, is cause and effect or action and result the results of our decisions. It's our life, it's our decisions, and it's our results that we experience. That is gamma, the results of our decisions. It's not God that's producing these things. So here he's helping people to understand that, and then you can start practicing it, and you can observe that it's your own decisions that are leading to discontentedness, and it's your own decisions that are leading to anything harmful that comes back to you in your life. There's no such thing as luck, there's no such thing as bad luck. There's no such thing as this just randomly happened to me. There's no such thing as I did this, all these things in the past, and that's the only reason why everything's happening to me now. And there's no such thing as there is no cause or condition for the reason why these things are happening in our life, that there's always a cause and condition. And when you understand that, then now you can take control. You can, you're empowered because now you understand that any discontentedness in your mind is based on your own decisions. Any unwholesome things that are happening in your life is based on your own decisions. And because you're causing all those challenges and all those issues in your life, now by taking responsibility for that, now you can purify your intention, speech, and actions through acquiring wisdom. And now with this wisdom, you can make wise decisions and lead to wholesome results. But if we give up everything and we say, everything that I'm experiencing now is all because of the past, everything I'm experiencing now is because of God, or everything that I'm experiencing now, it doesn't have a cause or condition, it's just luck. It's just good luck or bad luck. Then if you think this way, then you have no control or no ability to be able to improve your life and improve the condition of the mind because you're saying that you have no ability that anything that you do is fruitless. It's not possible for you to improve anything because it's essentially everyone else's fault that all these things are happening. So the Buddha is helping you to see that that's not true. And then you can practice it and see the truth for yourself. Any questions on this chapter?
investiture. So believing that uh, what's happening is our fate or our God's plan to us is a wrong view. Yes, it's a wrong view. Here the Buddha talks not only about certain things like destroying life, taking what is not given, sexual activity, falsehoods, arguments, harsh speech, idle chatter, but here he talks about is the mind that is full of longing have ill will and hold wrong view. This is craving anger and ignorance or the unknowing of true reality. He's saying, you know, is it God's fault? Is it God that's causing you to have longing or this craving, desire, attachment? Is it God that's causing this anger, hatred, and ill will? Is it God's fault that you have wrong view, that you have this lack of wisdom, that you have this ignorance or unknowing of true reality? Is it truly God's fault that your mind is this way? And these people that he was talking to said, yeah, that's the reason why. And then the Buddha says, you know, you don't understand what's true and what's valid. And this is why you're muddle-minded. Muddle-minded is like confused. The mind is lacking clear comprehension, focus, and concentration. And he's saying that they don't guard the mind. Guarding the mind is with mindfulness or awareness of mind. And he's saying the personal designation of aesthetic could not even be legitimately applied to them. Because an aesthetic is someone who's on the path to enlightenment, seeking to understand the world and these natural laws of existence in order to eliminate discontentedness. So if somebody's saying that it's all because of God that all these things are happening, then the Buddha's like, you're not even on the path to enlightenment if you think that way. Thanks, Let's go to Miranda. Uh, yes, sir. The question on Facebook is, Venerable Teacher, what to do when I feel lacking energy and drained? How do I arouse energy? Most of the time I feel drained and lacking the factor of energy and hindered by sloth and torpor. I am not understanding how to be able to arouse energy when drained even after a small amount of work. Yeah, as long as you have craving, desire, attachment in the mind, which you will until the mind's enlightened, you're going to experience these times where the mind is sluggish and feeling lethargic. And you may even experience times where the mind's excited and elated. And it's the seven factors of enlightenment that give you the tools of how to bring that into the middle. So when the mind is sluggish and lethargic and complacent, the Buddha teaches to practice the enlightenment factor of investigation, the enlightenment factor of energy, and the enlightenment factor of joy. You can see details on this in volume one, chapter three. If you go back there, you can ex understand those as well as the ones when the mind's excited. And then he talks about mindfulness. Mindfulness is awareness of mind. This is what guards the mind. That once your mind gets to the middle, you need to have awareness of mind that when it starts sliding off to this lethargic, complacent condition that you can spot that and you bring it back to the middle so you don't let it dwell deep down into the sluggish mind, complacent mind, lethargic mind. Because once the mind gets deep down into there, it's a lot harder to bring it back. So you need to use the tools of the seven factors of enlightenment to bring it to the middle. And then once it's in the middle, maintain that with mindfulness and awareness of mind. But understand that your mind's going to be doing this up and down all the way until it gets to enlightenment. You can diminish it where maybe when you were off this path, there was these really big highs and these really low lows. And as you get closer and closer to the first, second, third, fourth stage of enlightenment, 
this all diminishes where you don't have these real highs and these real lows. But there are going to be those and you just need to be aware of them with mindfulness. That's the guard that the Buddha is talking about. Because when you notice the mind starts slipping to complacency, you can pull it back before it gets too far down there. Or if you notice the mind is moving towards excitement and elation, before it gets too far into that, you can pull it back. And it's a lot easier to do that. But you have to have a full comprehensive practice. So the breathing mindfulness meditation is what's helping you to gain this control over the mind. So if you were only practicing the enlightenment factors that the Buddha talks about in the seven factors of enlightenment, you're not going to be able to pull the mind to the middle. That's why it's a whole entire path, the eightfold path, and all of these different factors of the path work together so that you can gain more and more control over the mind. There's not just one thing to do in order to bring the mind out of its sluggish condition. The seven factors of enlightenment are there to help you. But if somebody wasn't practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, for example, they wouldn't be able to cut off and let that go very easily. But also if they weren't practicing right mindfulness or awareness of mind, it wouldn't be very easy. If they weren't practicing right effort, that wouldn't be able to help them as well. So they would need to be sure that they're practicing all eight factors of the path. And that's what's ultimately going to fine tune the mind and bring it to the middle. But even in that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, there's still going to be some up and down a bit. But you're refining the mind more and more and more until ultimately it's enlightened and it'll always stay in the middle permanently. It won't ever slip into that sluggish position or that real excited position with conditioned feelings. But it's all gradual training, gradual progress, gradual practice that you'll see this progress as you progress forward. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. Well, that's all for today, teacher. All right. Well, thank you all for joining for today's class, whether you're watching this live and participating in the class or whether you're watching this on the replay or the podcast. In our next class, we're going to be in chapters 21 through chapters 30. So you can read those prior to class. And then when you come to class, you'll have been better informed about what those chapters are and perhaps have certain questions that you need clarification. Because remember, there's the Buddha's words that are in these books. Then there's the reference to allow you to go back and look at the original if you like, because he said things before and after each one of these. And then there's explanations that I've shared in terms of helping you to understand these, which goes into a lot more detail than what I go into in these classes. These classes are kind of a way to kind of talk about them in a general sense and then drilling down into the detail where you guys would like detail. But it's the explanations in the books that really get deep into the detail. And some of those explanations, I really go into a lot of penetrating details to help you understand every aspect of what the Buddha is actually sharing in his teaching. So it would be really wise to ensure that if you participate in this program, that you're also reading the book before and or after class as well. So we'll see you in next Saturday's class if you'd like to attend where you can study chapters 21 through 30. Tomorrow in the group learning program, we're in volume one, chapter 19, which is titled The Difficult Human Existence, Sickness, Aging, and Death. There we're going to be talking about the life story of the Buddha, as well as these three aspects of life that make it very difficult for humans, sickness, aging, and death. 
we'll talk about what those are and how to actually ensure that the mind can remain content and peaceful when you or the people around you are experiencing sickness, aging, and death. And then this Wednesday, we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation as part of our Wednesday meditation class together. So I'll see you either next Saturday or perhaps Sunday and or Wednesday. We'll see you then. Have a very lovely and wonderful rest of your day. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.